listening to the New Century Multiverse, Panthasol. Chapter 18. Beatrix's Tale. Beatrix. It is a later day in my past. The crew of the Stalwart Whale have journeyed deep within the Southlands, searching for tribes that have not yet encountered us and will be less wary. The hall is rich. We are assisted by some slaver cats of the region who know the area and seek a share of the profits. They are a mix of panthers, jaguars and leopards with mean little eyes and no flair for bargaining. Passing some ancient ruins we hear a commotion and find two tigers engaged in an almighty brawl. I have the crew snag them with sleeping darts. But this pair come with a bonus. A strange monkey creature, almost fully clothed with hair only upon his head, and a cheeky almost intelligent demeanor. I keep him in a cage in my cabin. Petting and feeding him comforts me when we are alone. It makes me feel as though there is love in my life. Dr. Shira and I talk about the ongoing health of the stock. There was one other thing I wanted to mention as well. I came across the term loose packed on one of the ledgers. Yes, that's just how we store them on the way across. I'm not a fan of tight packing. So that's more stock with less room to move. Correct? Correct. Although, strictly between you and I, it's really no room to move. And you avoid that out of compassion for the stock? Partly. The numbers aren't as good at the other end if you type-pack them, are they? Very astute. She voices the very concerns that have plagued me. And I feed her the template responses I was given, keen to agree and commiserate with her. In my experience, no. The percentage on spoilage always goes up too high, and our margins suffer. Well, as long as the margins are being looked after... I'm not awfully fond of your tone, Doctor. But afraid that word will get out as to my misgivings, with the methods doled out by the higher-uppers. That I'll lose my situation. And who benefits from that? Not I. Not Shira. Definitely. Not the stock. I pick through the exotic trinkets and plants we have acquired from the West. All of which I can sell at a high price due to the curious Albion gentry. And I tell myself I am bringing people precious rarities. And that is of value. Sykes, the first mate lays his proposal upon me to control the stock below decks 
he plans to keep all thoughts of fighting back from gaining purchase in their minds by means of systemic rape. My blood runs cold as he says these words, and the deadness of those eyes makes me fear for my own life. I fight to keep from holding myself protectively and cling on to the dominant half of our discussion. I loosely, non-committally give him permission to do what he sees fit to in order to control the already unruly cargo. Why you don't mind my methods? How could I like them? Well, luckily, I don't need you to like him. Just give me the okay. Keep them in place. I'll keep them in place. You're dismissed. After he leaves, I sigh deeply and crawl into my bed. My eye is on a bright dagger, purloined from one of the jaguars in chains. I think about how quickly I might run it across my throat. It looks so sharp that I may barely feel a thing, and as the life leaks away from me, so will all this wretched fucking business. And Sykes will discover my body and don the red coat. No, that cannot happen. He cannot hold so many lives in his vicious paws with nobody to answer to. We must at the very least, press on with this voyage. But what Dr. Shira said haunts me. Her disgust over the treatment of lives as numbers cannot be refuted by anybody one might consider sane. How did I fall this far? And this deep. Then disaster strikes. The slave revolt. A shark, the scale of which I have never dreamed, attacks my ship. The widow beneath the waves, a dark tale of the oldest world, turns out to be absolutely real. The simple act of regarding a shadow that vast under the water threatens to snap my already badly troubled mind. But I have so much more to worry about now. Most of my crew is killed. Sykes is in chains. A drinking water drains away in the wreckage of the assault 
And though the widow is somehow repelled, we are listing in the water. Shira speaks to their leaders, a tall, mature panther of surprisingly noble bearing, and a purple tiger who has clearly taken her monkey back from me. Those two, in fact, seem very close. Dr. Shira establishes that these cats wish to turn us around and go back to their homeland. Controlling my rage and fear, I illustrate to her that we will not survive on the scant water supplies we have. Our only hope is to limp the last leg to Albion. And even then, many are going to expire through thirst. I bid her lie to them. Promise them freedom with the support of our people. Elsewise, every single one of us is dead. I take the wheel. The tiger takes my cabin. Later on, I am led to Sykes. He is already dead. Stabbed in the heart, hanging from a series of chains, his tongue lolling and one unfocused eye visible beneath his drooping mohawk. The leopard, Lisette, and the cheetah, Aresh, seem to want me to mourn this hateful creature. I think of his cruelty and malice. I ponder the excuses I have made for myself by having lions like these around me for appealing, self-forgiving contrast. I stare blankly at his corpse and ask where they wish for me to sleep when I am not steering. They tell me to sleep beside the wheel. Other cats will take turns keeping us on course. But I must teach them. When we reach Albion, matters begin rolling like clockwork, exactly as I had predicted. The surviving cats, I find I cannot call them stock anymore, either out loud or inside my head, are immediately detained. And in their weakened, bewildered state, they cannot resist. I am commended once again for my actions. The great Albion Trading Company raise my salary and give me a hefty bonus. A court case is drawn up. Myself and Dr. Shearer are summoned to give testimony on what in the blue blazes actually happened out there. On the days before, while the legal teams are assembling, I scout out famed abolitionist lawyer Quincy P. Matthews and ensure he finds out about the trial. Art is the measure of one's civilization. A beast in the field does not make art, neither does a snake in the grass. 
though they can possess their own inherent aesthetic beauty. Art is an expression of oneself and one's culture and history through painting and writing, words, song, dance. We can no longer hide behind notions that these are not people, or that they are so primitive that they cannot comprehend our world, that their only place in it is as the basest of labor. These are, beyond a shadow of a doubt, our own brothers and sisters. They feel as passionately as we. I also locate an old associate of mine, Captain Bertram. Wessex. He is not pleased to see me, having drawn his own line at trading in lives years ago. I have avoided him since I crossed that line. But he has heard tales of my success. When I ask him about the stories of freed slaves disappearing without a trace from Albion, he claims absolutely no knowledge of how this can have been happening. He carries families of respectable lion passengers, moving their lives wholesale across to the New World. I ask him about the abolitionist myth of the Scarlet Peterbald, a dashing, courageous lion who some say hides among the gentry by day but by night, with his gang of equally justice-driven rogues, seeks to free cats from bondage. Wessex turns his back on me and walks up the gangplank of his recently moored ship as I call out after him that I am a changed lioness. He looks over his shoulder and all I see in him is mistrust and disappointment. Nobody who thinks they know who I really am will let me be anything else. I attend the court case. I make my show. I do my bit. I remain a cog in the well-oiled system. There is a narrow scrape when the king himself turns up for a gander at the foreign devils. You just try to expand an empire with a baseline that has rights. See what happens. No, Mr. Matthews, sending this lot home would, in consequence, be the very antithesis of mercy. I dissuade him from separating my monkey from the pack of them. Wait, what's that creature there? The pale monkey thing? Oh, I want it. Having seen how connected he and the purple tiger are. A word of caution, sire. This one is prone to defecation. Seriously? And then the violent flinging of said toiletry emissions at a moment's notice. In that case, you can keep the little turd slinger. Pray carry on. Hrow stands on the dock beside this mix of people not understanding what is being hurled back and forth in the courtroom in Albiz. As Matthews, with the assistance of Dr. Shearer, does his best to keep them out of the jaws of death. The tiger 
does not understand the very principles of slavery. It is simply absurd to her that one cat could own another. Any attempts to explain the laws surrounding this are lost as she maintains her clear, almost cub-like view on the world. I envy her. In the end, as I predicted, the cats are sentenced to death upon the morrow. I read in the papers the next morning of their pre-dawn disappearance from the Tower of Leon. It is most perplexing. The legend of the Scarlet Peterbald grows. I glance across at my own crimson coat hanging on the back of the door as I eat my toast and jam in my little rented lodgings. Were it that my life could be so grand. The stalwart whale completes its repairs and she is ship-shaped in bristled fashion once more. So, I am called back to service. I am bereft of rationalization now. Yet, I am still somehow ready to get back on a boat again. Be its captain, sail over the sea, return to the nitty-gritty of moving cats, from the natural homes to enforced labor half a world away. Line my pockets with gold, ignore the suffering I am causing, because it is entirely required for me to ignore it. On a night of a thousand stars, I take the wheel of the whale, look up at that vastness above our heads, and for the first time, comprehend who I really am in all of this, and how small I truly feel. And the faces of every cat who has passed through this boat come at me out of the darkness and rain down like a million lashes. I sink to the deck, whimpering like a lost cub. Something has fractured in my mind, and I can no longer support myself. Hate. I hate the person I the am. The person I am. I hate my place in this world. The crew gather around me, afraid I have taken ill. Just being near those like myself, who have made my excuses, fills me with revulsion. I want to flee from them, dive over the side, follow that leopard into the black ocean. I would fill my lungs with water, drift down into the seabed far below us, to dwell in the stillness, forever separated from the dealings of the surface, until I become a forgotten nothing.
I want to eradicate my presence. But I lack the strength to stand. The new first mate has me carried to my quarters, where I spend the rest of the voyage. We are too far out to turn back and the GATC will not allow it for a single lioness stricken with madness. In the darkness where I lay, I remember the creature I called a monkey. Recall his communication with many of the other cats. I ponder how easy it was to fool myself that since their frames of reference were different to me, they were not required to be seen as intelligent beings. Every single one of them thought and felt and feared and hurt. And those faces do not stop visiting me in my horrific half dreams. Eventually, after a day of lying in absolute silence, my mind working over ways I could sail out beyond this tiny island I have marooned myself on, I am able to drink and then eat. I regain a little strength but I will speak to nobody about my mind. When we finally reach the western shores, I disembark with the crew and preparations begin for a hunting party. That is when I slip off into the jungle. It is not a plan to escape. There is no mastery of my destiny. I just want to be away from that life, and I trust that eventually the wild will take me. However, it does not. I encounter hostility in the cats I met among those great, tall, ancient trees, and many try to kill me based purely on my species. Somehow, though, that attacks bring out something savage from within. A fierce will to survive, to live on. And I rationalize now, in the darkness of the understory, beneath the blue moon, that I will not take a single one of their lives. But my jaws hunger. A lion. In the city of Basterian, I find a shared habitat where my abhorrent species are permitted to walk among the rest of the cats. An optimistic reflection of Leonidas, where those non-lions in bondage are sometimes permitted to walk about, but not to leave. Panthers, tigers, jaguars, far too many of them there 
honestly seem to believe that if those intruders from Albion are allocated their fair share, then they will be satisfied. In actuality, they will take and take and take until there is nothing left of value to them. I know this to be an unavoidable truth. Their thirst is unquenchable, but because it is the place I can interact with every species, Bastarian finally yields what I need. A new crew. Alone, I am obliged to work to acquire trust, laboring as a barmaid and as a dishwasher in a fish restaurant, until finally, through connection to what I understood now to be decent folk, I am able to meet with abolitionists of many stripes and spots, with an underground group who speak many languages, including our bees. A plan is hatched that I can assist them with. They need a ship and they need a lion to help them get it. That week, we steal the intrepid pride of the king's navy right out from under their noses as she lies moored in Leonidas Harbor. Now the crimson serpent decked out all in red she becomes our new home. And because of her speed, nobody can catch us. To begin with, I remain quiet and do not dole out orders. We have a leader in Marco. I shall do my bit and not make waves. But eventually he is wounded in battle and it is my quick thinking and knowledge of the very ships we prey upon that saves us. Marco lives, and as he heals up, passes me the captain's hat. We take a dozen slave ships in recent yesterdays, bringing hundreds back to their homes. Some of them, I am deeply ashamed to admit, are familiar faces, snatched more than once by my wretched brethren. I recognize them from my waking nightmares. Initially, we advise these cats of Arcadia to flee from the shorelands. Go further into the jungles. Take their villages and settlements and let nature swallow them up. Even the cities are not safe. But I am torn between this urgency and a new phrase which has reached our ears. One which speaks of uniting all cats of the West against the lions who would take their everything. It is a phrase that is simple but pure and becomes clear we need everyone for this effort.
one tribe, one family, under one, under one moon. Colo Nash. One family under one moon. Says Leah. I've heard that spoken. Also, one tribe, one nation, one clan. It was a sentiment hatched on the Starwood Whale. I watched Chief Shala conversing with Rao. I witnessed Rapal becoming a language they shared. I was there when it spread from one tiger and her smart little companion to an entire vessel of cats of every kind. What became of them? I growl. The liberated cats returned to the west, thanks to the Scarlet Peterbald. From what I hear, Chief Shala has been extremely active in pursuing his goal. He would probably welcome us if we can retrieve the Cloudbreaker. Well, that's definitely a long-term plan. I say, gruffly, my eyes narrowing as I stare off into the distance. That evening, I keep experiencing horrendous dreams. Moments after drifting off, I can feel eyes on me from afar. The morbid fear that she is out there, somewhere, and will one night come for me, has never left. You have been listening to episode 18 of Panther Soul, Beatrix's Tale. Written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Captain Beatrix, performed by Loretta Saylor. Dr. Shearer, performed by Laura Kate Dale. Quincy P. Matthews, performed by Alastair Stewart. Marco, performed by Robert Surice. Leah, performed by Willow Shaw. Colo Nash, Sykes, and King Louis XVI, performed by Alex Shaw. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Tiger's Eye Theme, Agent in Shanghai, composed and performed by Mark John Petrie of Shockwave Sound. Drums of the Deep, Mist on the Moor, and Tempting Secrets, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Egmont Overture, composed by Ludwig van Beethoven. Last Dawn, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Protean Fields, Age of Sail, The Strange, Cultist's Cavern, and Desert Temple. All ambients from Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, 
Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, John Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tima Helaz Hario, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. For the maximum New Century Multiverse experience, you need to be checking out the podcast Through the Wind Door, where Greg Downing and Toby Skeels Jungius talk us through each story like a book club and go into mind-boggling depth. I don't know about you, but I like having my mind boggled. They're currently up to Steamheart. Heart.